All right, now we're recording. So how was everyone's week? Exciting? Wet. Wet. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> well, let's pray, shall we? Father, again, we just praise you, God, for everything and uh, that you are. And we just ask that we would get to know you a little bit more, that we can understand you and commune with you. And God, it's just so amazing that we even have that opportunity. Thank you for that. And please bless our time of study this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, it's been a while since we've seen some folks. So last week, we introduced what we're going over. Um, So the fancy title is The Doctrine of God. So the whole idea is what is our purpose? Why are we here? as Christians, it's to know God and to be known by Him. Plain and simple, right? So with that being said, we're going to be in Genesis this morning, the first chapter of Genesis. But first, do you guys know who uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer was? Anyone? Michael, yeah. (laughs) Well, he wrote this about the essence of God, and, and I love it, and I wanted to share that with you guys. The holy inadequate... Man's conception of God is measured by those characteristics which he attributes to God. The Bible represents a revelation which, though limited by the restrictions that language must ever impose, is of a person, and this revelation attributes to him those exalted qualities which are his. These qualities thus attributed are properly styled attributes. To declare his person and the sum total of his attributes would constitute a final definition of God which man might never hope to form. The attributes of God present a theme so vast and complex and so beyond the range of finite faculties that any attempt to classify them must only be approximate as to the accuracy or completeness. So also the attributes are so interrelated and interdependent that the exact placing of some of them is difficult, if not wholly impossible. So, what is uh, Schaefer talking about here? He's, he's saying the idea that, okay, when we get to know folks, um, we have certain attributes about us. Maybe hot-tempered or humble or, or meek, right? And then as we get to know these, these people, these attributes become uh, something that defines them, right? Of, of who they are and who you interact with them. And that's what... Schaefer was trying to get on here. And he says, the works of God are basically manifestations of his attributes. Therefore, to truly understand God's works, it's important to have a greater understanding of his attributes. Meaning, you want to understand why God does certain things, then understand him as a person. Does that make sense? Because if you, if you understand those of us that are married, or those of us that have had friends for many, many years, you understand your spouse or that person you're close with. You understand why they are doing something because of how they are. Does that make sense? Can you think of something? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> See? See what I just did there? <laughs> I understood something about her because of how she is. <laughs> so there's harmony among God's attributes. Um, so there are characteristics in the attributes of God, and sometimes they're very distinct. They're never isolated or disassociated. They always work with each other as a total expression of God's being. Um, Not one of them can be omitted. So if you're taking a look at Scripture and and you have this picture of God, well, that's why we have all the revelation of Scripture, right? You can't just take one portion, say, you know, the angel of death on Passover and say, oh my gosh, God is just this horrific wanting to kill everybody. Uh, type of God. Well, then we also have grace of God and, and mercy of God shown in other portions. So that's why it has to be a totality as a whole. And if you remember last week when I was describing on the intro to the doctrine of God, God is a person to be known, first and foremost, not a frog to be dissected. So as we go into these different attributes and things, we have to understand that, that to understand God as an entire person. That's our, our goal. God's attributes were actually never acquired. So those of us here on earth, we are a product of where we grew up or how we grew up. Some of our attributes were acquired because of our circumstances. That's not true with God. Does that make sense? That they are essential to who and what he is. 
They represent what he is, what he's always been, and what he will be forever. So we come into the classification of God's attributes. There's a couple of them. Um, natural and moral, positive and negative, communicable and incommunicable. So what do we mean by that? So natural and moral. The natural belong to God's existence, such as his infinity, his rational spirit. And the moral belong to him as his righteous spirit, positive and negative. The negatives are those which deny limitations to him. So in the positive, something's affirmed. The negative, something's denied. So positive, like his power, knowledge, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. The negative, his infinity, eternity, immutability. And then the communicable and incommunicable. So incommunicable is self-existence, eternity, unity, immutability. So those are the things that can't be translated, right? And then the communicable, the ones that he can impart on us, wisdom, righteousness, justice, goodness, love, truth. So here we are at the beginning, Genesis 1.1. God, the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, you guys know I'm biased, right, uh, from my apologetics background, but that is literally the most important passage, I think, in all of Scripture. Why? Well, it defines, it just assumes God is, the, is in existence. It doesn't go to prove his existence. It shows God as creator. It also shows something when it says, in the beginning. So what is it implying? Yeah, eternal, right? So we're told that the secret of the universe, in this case, isn't a formula, but a person. In the beginning, God. As Mike pointed out, the eternal God. So we get this idea of eternality. Does anyone have any, besides me, have difficulty trying to understand eternity? or infinity, right? We, we, it just seems something so abstract that we don't really have that much of a, a concept on it. Um, has anyone ever listened to any um, debates or read anything from uh, Dr. William Lane Craig? So Dr. Craig was one of my professors down at Biola and Talbot, and we once took a um, God and Time class on him. And trust me, <laughs> that one was highly theoretical. But in our, our trouble grasping this eternality of God, and we may so describe God as eternal, but we can't grasp the measure of it. And Dr. Craig once issued <clears throat> this illustration. He said, imagine a rock 100 miles long, 100 miles wide, and 100 miles high. So kind of a square. And now once every thousand years, a bird comes and sharpens its beak on the rock. Only when that rock has been completely worn away will one brief moment of eternity have passed. So the whole idea is to get you to help you understand just the vastness of it. If you can wrap your mind around Dr. Craig's rock analogy and the bird over one, every 1,000 years coming to sharpen its beak, and then when the rock's worn away, then you're like, okay, now a small portion, a moment of eternity has passed. So what does this make you think <laughs> about God? Uh, and come on, be honest, just popcorn up ideas when you think of God now being eternal with that in your mind. Forever. Yeah, forever. In my mind, it creates a picture so immense that when I think about worshiping God or when I think about God knowing us, it's just, I kind of can't help but have that response that um, uh, Isaiah had, right? You know, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. It should just generate this profound humility in uh, service of God. Well, when you go up into the mountains and you see the stars and you realize how many stars there are, because down here when you look out and you think, oh, yeah, there's some right. stars. But to see the in that immenseness, not that you can even get I know. grasp of how many there are then, but his... Uh, who is it, Giglio? You know, yeah, when yeah, yeah. Giglio yeah. does that whole presentation of the, the vastness of outer space. Yeah. It, I know. It's, it's it, tremendous. It know? is. It's absolutely unfathomable. And to think that that is the creator in which we have a personal relationship with. So we also the see... The what? That's the infallible the part oh, that's I know. really hard to concept. I know that why he would have a relationship with us. I know. And we also see, yeah. I, just, I guess I wanted to say, too, I guess just uh, the seriousness yeah. of where you're going to spend 
you eternity. Know, eternity at. I know. Like, man, if you think about how, you know, how you should not take any risk with where you spend eternity. I mean, like, how I agree. that decision really is. I know. And I absolutely agree with that. And it's, it seems, I don't know, the, the height of insanity. And we've all had those conversations with, you know, uh, unsaved folks on where they're going to spend eternity. And they're like, well, you know, then me and my buddies will be partying in hell. No, you really won't. <laughs> Trust me, it's no. not going to be a party. You know, I'm glad you think that, but no, not even close. Yeah, but then Ben's sermon this morning talks about how God wants relationship with mm-hmm. us. He wants that part to be that we are in right. personal. Uh, he desires this very intimate relationship. Yeah, knowing, 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 and and how can we forego that? You know? I know, yeah. I know. And the cool part, if we go on to chat or verse two, is that God is present. Okay, let me uh, unpack this a bit. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, if you guys think in your mind, and again, maybe that's just me, but I always have these pictures in my mind when I'm reading scripture. So, this stage of creation is, it seems dark and disordered and just frightening, right? Just that kind of, However, God is there all-powerful, purposeful, and active, hovering over the waters. And we see the closeness of God to his creation at this point, his presence over it. And this should inspire us, as Margaret was saying, when we go out and just see the stars, not to worship nature, but to respect its value, delight in its beauty and complexity, and most of all, to recognize God in his works. To see that he is there, present, from the very beginning. And that was so cool that the author included that, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, just the unformedness of, the, of the, the creation. Now the God of order. So this process in Genesis 1 is God ordering the earth. Now, right here, the earth was without form and void. Um, in Hebrew, that Hebrew phrase is tohu wabohu, and the interesting part, it doesn't refer, when it's saying unformed, unfilled, it's not referring to chaos like in the Greek. The Greek uh, is referring to this, this order when they talk about chaos. But this specific Hebrew word is talking about just a planned, unfinished creation. Very purposeful. So now I'll read 3 through 25. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate daylight from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. 
And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So we see extreme order in this. God is very, very purposeful. There's nothing done uh, that isn't planned or that doesn't make sense. <laughs> to put it uh, another way, I love this phrase. I think Dr. Hovind said this once. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? <laughs> right? You know, God never has an oh moment. <laughs> right? That, that doesn't happen. Now get this. So I know a lot of times, maybe I'm not the only one. Do you guys ever not have doubts about our faith, but you wonder, you're like, is there people smarter than me that yeah. believe in God as well? <laughs> you know, or, the, or that have faith. I mean, does that help kind of strengthen you guys by realizing that there's astrophysicists and medical doctors and theoretical mathematicians that have faith in Christ as well? I, I mean, you, you think somebody with that type of intellect to still have faith is astounding. So David Wilkinson, he was a uh, theoretical astrophysicist, and he is now a minister and an author, and he makes this point, which I love. Why is the universe so ordered that science itself is possible? See, science assumes that such an order underlies its laws, but it cannot explain why. And why can we understand that order? Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. The Christian says that the laws of physics are a reflection of the faithfulness of God, the lawgiver. And we can understand them because the same God underlies the rationality of our minds. Why does the universe seem so well set up for life? Life in the universe is only possible because a number of very sensitive balances in the laws of physics. Over the last 30 years, scientists have often been moved to ask the why question. As we have discovered more, for example... If the energy levels in carbon and oxygen were only a fraction of a percent different to what they are, there would be no carbon in the universe, and therefore no you and me. Sir Fred Hoyle, who pioneered work in this area, stated that nothing had shaken his atheism as much as that discovery. Who was that? Fred Hoyle. So what is Wilkinson saying here? The basic idea is this. If we're nothing more than meatballs hurtling through the space around the sun, why do we have consciousness? Think about it, right? Science can explain brain formation and proteins, neurons, etc., but they cannot explain consciousness. What do I mean by consciousness? That self-awareness that we have right now. Everyone is aware of their own being. You guys are aware of yourself. You're aware of sitting in this class. You're aware of listening to me. You have this self-awareness. This, of course, was made famous by Rene Descartes, you know, the think, therefore, I am, right? But science can't even come close to explain that part. Why do we have consciousness? Because we have a soul. Right. And it was imparted and given by God, the first consciousness. The level of purposefulness in God and his creation cannot be merely explained away. Even if you don't have faith in God, as science is now discovering through that question, why do we have consciousness? And it's a huge problem because we don't know, because everything is so unbelievably ordered and purposeful, where we would need this idea that, that uh, the formation or, or the um, engine of creation would have to be chaotic. It would have to be, that, that's the only way it can happen by chance. Chaos, right? You know, uh, you can't have this extremely ordered and purposeful or a good creation in verse 31 of Genesis. The goodness of creation, however, can never rival the goodness of the God of creation. And all worship is to do Him alone. So this is another attribute we see that God is good. Okay, we'll throw out some ideas there. What do you think that means when we describe God as good? without using good in your definition. <laughs> Nobody? Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, bud. <laughs> pure, profound. Pure, profound. Oh, walkers above our understanding. Right. 
So here's another one. Another scientist and, and philosopher, Vinoth Rashmandra, asks, why does the writer put the creation of the sun and the moon on the fourth day, after the creation of light, when it would have been obvious to everyone that they were the sources of the light for the earth? Did you guys ever wonder that? The sources? Yeah, yeah the sources. Why, why, why does the, the writer of Genesis, including in the creation account, why does he put the sun and the moon on the fourth day rather than when light itself was created? I think it's just cool because God is light. I mean, it's like, okay, you know, God did this. He's the one that designed it. And maybe in my simplicity of understanding, I can let God be who he is. You know? just and it, you're, you're, exactly. you hit the nail on the head, Margaret, but it's yeah. not s simple in your understanding. It's actually profound. And let me kind of unpack it, how, how it works. He answers his own question. He says, the reason becomes obvious when we recall that the worship of the sun and the moon was very common in the writer's world. For example, the great Chaldean city of Ur, where Abraham came from, was a famous center of moon worship. Also then, as now, many believe that human life was controlled by the motion of the planets. The Genesis narrative debunks this superstition. The heavenly bodies are simply creatures of God, lamps hung in the sky with no divine power of their own. They are neither to be feared nor worshipped. Nature is but a fellow creature with human beings. Both are dependent on and nourished by the Creator alone. Even cooler in this section, so there were proper names, Hebrew names, that the writer could have used to, for sun and moon. He didn't. Specifically because those names were also um, formations of deities in which they had worshipped by those names. So what words did the uh, Hebrew writer use to, for sun and moon. He used basically day light source and night light source. Very, very purposeful in here to make sure that those reading this account would not remotely get confused on worshiping the sun and the moon as entities in and of themselves, but only as that they are another creation from the creator, from God. I thought that was so cool in, in Hebrew. Okay, so as we keep going on in this, Let's talk about uh, the incommunicable attributes of God. So starting with self-existence. This is the most difficult one uh, that usually uh, we have in trying to understand is that God is self-existent. Why? Well, simply because we're not. You know, we, we live in a temporal world. We have to be someplace at some time. There has to be a beginning of something, right? When you think about yourself, you don't think about yourself in all eternity, past and future. You think in yourselves of blocks of time. You're remembering either your childhood or a couple weeks ago or whatever it is. So this means that God exists independently of any cause. I know it kind of bakes our noodle a bit. But God exists from himself. He's always existed and will always exist forever. No one has caused it, nor can anyone make it to cease. There's simply no cause of his existence outside of himself. God's existence is necessary. It's not contingent on anything else. He exists by his own being. The basis of his existence is not in his will to exist, but it's actually in his divine nature. God doesn't exist because he wants to but because his very nature demands that he exist. Does that make sense or no? Is that just a lot of words? Yep. <laughs> I love my wife. <laughs> it's funny that things we talk about God is eternity past. Right. And like the word in, in John 1, it says in the beginning, that word for beginning is take as far as you right. can back and go back farther. Right. And... Uh, so my first thought's like, well, how long was the Trinity just with each other until they created? I'm like, wait, but they created time, so it yeah. you can't answer that question. I know. Can't. And I'm glad you brought that up. Since you can't answer that question, then you can't answer the whys of creation that some people have tried to say, well, God created us because he was lonely. Ah, wrong. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not because he was lonely. Exactly. The Trinity has always existed, right? It's not because God was sitting there and saying, gee, I really wish I can have humans, you know, screw up my creation. Let me go ahead and do that. No. And that is, I don't know, that just kind of, in my mind, opens up again more of just the awesomeness of God. It's not, there isn't a reason that we can grasp in our minds as far as why he decided to create us. It wasn't because he was lonely. Yeah, Dan. 
I still think of the fish tank. Why do I have a fish tank? <laughs> right, I know. And it wasn't because he desired fellowship. Yes, he does desire fellowship, but it wasn't because of, right? right? There's no cause and effect. So in other words, we are not any cause of God's will. So for God creating us, there wasn't a because. I know that's hard to understand because anything that we do, there has to be a because. You know, I make a coffee table. Why? Because I don't have one. You know, I mean, there has to be something. His self-existence is seen in the special name by which he revealed himself to Israel, Yahweh, which means I am what I am or I am that I am in Exodus 6 and Exodus 3. So the following passages don't specifically declare the self-existence of God, but it is implicit in all that it's said about God as the, as the only God and the incomparable creator of all that exists. So those of you that are taking notes um, or listening online, it's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 17. Isaiah 21 through 26, just the whole chapters. Um, Isaiah 44, 24, and Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. So this self-existence of God, it's profound, and we can't really comprehend it. It's a mystery to our mind, but its truth should bring comfort and stability to our heart to know that God exists independently of everything. And he's always there for his people, regardless of what we are doing. At least in, in my mind, that brings me great peace. So, his self-existence. Now we're start diving more into this. Now the eternality, or God being eternal. So what uh, passages help us with that one? Genesis um, 21, 33. Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 through 2. Would you back up just a second? Yeah. Genesis um, 2133, Psalm 90, 1 through 2, Isaiah 40, verse 28, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17, and then Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8. Yeah. Okay, so eternity means more than what we commonly thought. So it includes three ideas. It, it means that the nature of God is without beginning or end which we're struggling with. We have this weird idea that there has to be this beginning of God, but there wasn't. The second one, that God is free from all succession of time. He's not limited to that. And the third one, that God contains within himself the cause of time. So we shouldn't consider time and space as somehow antecedent to God. They're among the, quote, all things made by him. And we have that difficulty um, grasping this, that somehow... God has to be inside of space and time, but nope, he made that too. So you really want to break your brain, then where was God hanging out before he made space or time? <laughs> it just keeps going, but stop, trust me. <laughs> you'll, 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 it's not going to work out well. So we see that eternity means far more than just endless time. So we speak of eternity without an end and of an eternity past without a beginning, but it's not the eternity of God. To him, there's no past, present, or future. He doesn't live in time, but beyond it in eternity. And as the eternal God, he's not subject to time. Um, that's found in Deuteronomy uh, 33, 27. Uh, back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. And then Isaiah uh, 57, 15. I think our problem is that we think of eternity or infinity as a number. Exactly. And... When I was in calculus, my professor kept saying, stop it. <laughs> or infinity as a number. Right. When you're looking at limits or asymptotes or anything like that. Because it, it just doesn't make sense. You can't make it make sense. And mm -hmm. you just have to accept what it is. That it's not a number. It's not anything <laughs> finite. Right. Without a beginning or an end. Right. Okay. So... When my kids, Walker's going to remember this, when my kids were young, I explained it to them like this. Imagine we're watching, well, since it's getting to be closer, I use that example, the 4th of July parade in Chehalis or, or Centralia, wherever, right? Or Morton, wherever you're at. So we're watching the 4th of July parade. Now, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're sitting here and we can see the progression of the, of the parade. 
Now, imagine for some unknown reason, we have a, a big city news helicopter up there televising it uh, for us as well. Because of the vantage point of the helicopter not being in the parade, it can still see the progression of the parade, right? But it can also see the beginning of it and the end of it at the same time, so to speak. Does that make more sense to kind of get this idea of how God is outside of that, if you imagine it that way? It's the best I can do. I don't, I don't have a better one to get us to grasp. Right, like the author of a book or, or the uh, artist of a painting. Uh, okay, now the unity of God. So, anyone here, uh, probably not, uh, want to deny that God is a triune God? That'd be, that'd be denying the very God of the Scripture. So it's, it's, it's taught very, very well. I mean, well as in many times, not well as in we can explain the Trinity uh, adequately. Because again, our messed upness or uh, yeah, messed up, upness. of time. Messed <laughs> upness. <laughs> okay, the teaching of the scripture on the unity of God, it directs us to two separate concepts. First, it teaches us that there's only one God numerically speaking, right? There's only one infinite and perfect and divine spirit and God is one and absolutely unique. But the unity of God also affirms that God's nature is indivisible and he is not a composite and can't be divided into parts. So it, no way, the unity of God in no way contradicts the doctrine of the Trinity, since the doctrine of the Trinity only asserts that there's personal distinctions in God's nature, but not a division in the essence of God's being. His essence is one. So to put it simply, um, any of those analogies that we've heard to try and describe the Trinity just don't, they don't work. You know, like if you say, you take a look at an egg, uh, you know, you can have the shell of the egg, the white of the egg, and the yolk of the egg, and it's, and it's full egg. That doesn't work. Here's why. Because the shell by itself is not 100% egg. The yolk by itself is not 100% egg. Do you get it? it so just don't, <laughs> is, is my encouragement when trying to describe the Trinity. None, none of those work. Um, it's actually going to lead you to probably some form of a heresy of modalism. Not the you're an uncle, you're a father, you're a husband. Yeah, that doesn't also, work. Yeah, saying God has different roles. <laughs> yeah, different personalities. Yeah, it, it doesn't work. So what else about God? Um, infinity. The infinity of God means that he is without limitations. We're not talking about eternity. We're just talking about God is without limitations. And you guys will see some messed up stuff if you try to Google this. Um, one of the things that if you type, I don't know if it's still that way in Google, um, can God, and the first you know, suggestion that comes up is can, or can Jesus microwave a burrito so hot that he can't eat it? I mean, like I said, you see some messed up things on Google. That's, yeah, type in can Jesus. Don't use DuckDuckGo, use actual Google. <laughs> and just say can Jesus. One of the first suggestions used to be microwave a burrito so hot that he can't eat it. Yep. Yep. Still is. Okay. <laughs> I know, people have random ideas. It's human nature, you could have probably. So, and you guys have heard that argument, right? That, uh, you know, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? So this is, it's just nonsense. He doesn't have bounds or limits. However, he does because he is limited by his nature and his essence. Does that make sense? God can't lie. God can't lie. God can't create a married bachelor. Right, yeah. He's not limited by the universe or space and time boundaries. Um, and he's not limited by anything in our minds, only by his nature. Now, how does infinity, uh, does it imply of God's um, omnipresence that he's everywhere at the same time? No, it, it's different because omnipresence emphasizes the transcendence of God. Infinity just means that he doesn't have any boundaries because he's not bound by space. So the infinity of God is related to all of God's perfections. And when we relate it to time, that's when he's called eternal. When related to his presence, uh, well, then we use the term immensity. And God's omnipresence is also related. And related to his power, it's called omnipotent. Related to his knowledge, it's called omniscient. Okay, so we went over a lot. I'm going to probably stop there so we don't keep glazing over. Um, so we can kind of unpack all this a little bit more and start answering some questions. Okay, any questions so far off the top of your guys' heads? No? So do you think it's 
blissful ignorance to not even care about these things? No. I mean, to care about the nature of God, sure, but if a Christian doesn't care about the eternality or haven't thought those things? Not in those terms. No, I don't think it matters. I mean, you know, if you're not going to sit here and have this dialogue with yourself about the, you know, omnipresence or omniscience of God, but these are attributes of God that you can't miss if you are getting to know him. Right. Yeah, but there are people that would want to sit and just argue yes. these things, and I'm like Devin. I don't. I don't want to. I don't. No. I don't no. Want yeah. To do that. I don't find it interesting. I don't find it fun or enjoyable. I'd rather say, okay, go have your fun. Yeah. But it's not productive. No. 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 That part isn't. But it's important for Christian doctrine because. Why is it important for Christian doctrine? Well, when we have those conversations with folks that maybe say that God isn't eternal, why should we even have that dialogue? Because that's a nature of who he is. So the two of us aren't worshiping the same God. Does that make sense? That's an argument? Yeah. yeah. That God isn't eternal that I've heard? Yes. Yeah, it's uh, William Lane Craig actually purges on it. Mm-hmm. It's called um, Molinism. Yep. This idea that truth, truth is the ultimate, and God is submissive to what this abstract truth is out there, and His sovereignty is reliant on what a truth is, and it's very confusing. But I will say, Margaret, though, I love to sit down <laughs> and discuss these things. I have a group of about three other guys, and we get together, and we have a, a book club, and we talk about these things, and we even have a group chat, and and we do discuss these nitty-nitty, little nitty-gritty things. And it's good for sharpening your your idea of who God is, because that's the biggest thing. I, um, I, I I was going to a church in Spokane, and one of the people was, who had gone from a different church in Spokane, she's like, the theology in that church was so shallow, but they loved Jesus. And I said, well, they didn't love Jesus enough to get to know him, apparently. Because if your theology is shallow and you don't want to dig deeper, Right. What do you, or do you want? It's like you know, know. Right. And I'm I'm going to be marrying Maddie, and if I didn't want to get to know her, do I really love her? And right. so and so the for me. Right. She doesn't know the Jesus that you love. Right. Right. Who are you right. So you sit on a corner with a with a Mormon, and you're talking to them, and and they say, yeah, we worship Jesus. We we were saved by His grace, and but then you get into who they believe Jesus is, and you get into the personhood of. of of Jesus and the and they believe he was created. He we believe he's not created. There is a dividing line right there that's mm-hmm. like, no, you don't worship the same Jesus and that Jesus can't save you. So it is important to know some of these nitty gritty things. And the only way I come to know things is by externally processing them with other people, being called on my small heretical views maybe. <laughs> and and being like, No, I don't think God does this and then somebody says, What about this? and then this and and it's it, it's it's a, it's more of a hobby for me. I can see where people can get annoyed with annoyed with that kind of back and forth, and and it's almost a talking talking in a circle. But at the end of it, it's I mean, there's worse things to talk about. <laughs> and even God, right. even God, I think I think it was God talking in the Bible when he's I mean all the Bibles God talking, but when he said, "Come, let us reason together." Yes. And that's that's the best thing is to, to to sit down with with fellow Christians and the Lord is present and we can sit there and reason together about who He is 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 one of the best things in my mind that we can we can talk about. And uh, to piggyback off of that, yeah, I, I do think it's I know it's a weighty subject and there's a lot and you're you know you feel like you're like oh, I just I just want to love Jesus. I agree. But which Jesus, right? It, you know, it's like me saying, do I love my actual wife or do I love the idea of having a wife? There's a big difference there. And it's, and it's the same. Let's unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> what if I went to go talk to somebody about my stepdad? And I'm like, yeah, he's a five foot ten, blonde hair, green eyed um, construction worker. That's not Sean. That's not my dad. So if you're talking about God and you're like, 
he's you know right he's one he's the trinity is one person and shows itself in three different ways among time it's like no 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 that's not what the bible says about the trinity you're not talking about the same god and it's like where at what point do you have enough of those wrong ideas where you aren't truly worshiping the right god Right. You know, are you worshiping the God that'll give you everything you selfishly want, like Pastor Ben <laughs> was refuting today? Or are you mm-hmm. worshiping a God where you are subservient to His will, and so when you do that, your desires become what His desires are? So, and and I struggled with you know kind of preparing these lessons because obviously um, you know these were taught by PhDs, and um, I kind of need to. Figure out the balancing between making this a college level course and versus something that regular people can understand. But the idea is we need to know the actual God of Scripture, not only for just knowing Him for our own sake and worshiping God in what? Spirit and truth, truth, right? So we need to have the truth of that, but also so we can have those dialogues uh, with people that we come across and that we can explain our faith. Um, and I think historically, unfortunately, the church, we, we've done a really poor um, work of that. And we've just had kind of this surface level stuff. I mean, you all have probably been to the same worship services where they have the smoke machines and lasers and stuff. And, and someone comes out and they're like, isn't Jesus so cool? I just think Jesus is so awesome. <laughs> okay. Do you want to you wanna build on that? Like, who are you talking about? Right. At work or anything like that, um, our culture is really fast. Your what? Culture. Our culture <laughs> is really fast. At work. Notice, slow it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna like, if you're gonna have a talk with someone and, and have it be meaningful, you you have to enter into that conversation like trying to save their soul. Mm-hmm. You can't enter it trying to prove you're right and they're wrong. Correct. And that's really hard. Like you have to learn that. You have to be deliberate. And I mean, it's you know, you have to be equipped in apologetics. I mean, you you have to take time to do that because that's very countercultural. Um, and you have to get to know that person. And it takes time. I mean, if if you're actually doing it, unless they're just saying something to make you mad or see what you're going to respond. And, right. And that's what happens a lot of times is somebody might just say something because they don't have the discipline or they don't have the faith so they want to see you know what you might do if they say something dumb or something well and also to not be led astray by just crazy ideas that are out there so as I'm looking at, I'm looking at our at our next one and they could sound really 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 good right so there was one that was um, it, it's kind of died in popularity but when I was in school um, it was called open theism and it was this idea that God isn't just this stoic, steadfast, you know, not willing to bend tyrant, but you know, God is a loving God and he's caring and he, he kind of moves along with history and, and meets you where you are. Sound familiar? Okay. Um, so the next attribute here on my list, and I'll, I'll discuss this one, the fancy name is called God's immutability. And it just simply means that he can't change. So when you're talking with someone like this and they're, they're having these ideas, and it really may sound good. It may sound like, yeah, that's the God of the Bible. He, he's, he's willing that, you know, to, for us to love him. He's willing to meet us where we are. He's, he, this is the God that isn't just stuck in time. This is the God that is beyond all. This is the God that can change and be fluid. No. That's a terrible, terrible idea of God. Why? Because that's describing me. That's an awful thing, and I don't want that. Where he has an ultimate plan that he wants things to go to, but he can't sovereignly make it happen. That it's going to happen. Right. So he has to use what we do and 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 change it. That's right. Why that you know they would say what God meant for you or what what Satan meant for evil God used for good yeah. instead of what it actually says what Satan meant for evil God meant for good right that's a good point and the, see the idea is you're gonna come across these ideas if you guys talk to other Christians or if you listen to stuff on YouTube or maybe even podcasts or look at things on TV regardless you're gonna come across these ideas and the whole idea with classes like this is. Well, I want to protect you against those ideas so you can recognize them and understand that's not true. That's not the God of the, the Bible. 
So God isn't subject to change. He's not variable, right? In his nature and character, God is that name. I am that I am. I am unchanging. Praise God. See, reason also teaches that God is unchanging. He must be unchanging. There can be no change in him, either for better or for worse. Let me rephrase that. Either for better or for worse. Because that means if he can get better, then he wasn't as perfect as he can be. Or worse, we don't even want to go down that road for obvious reasons. See, since God's infinite and absolute perfection, if God could change for the better or worse, it would indicate a weakness in his being. And there can be no cause for a change in a God who's perfect. So, Our salvation is based off of the new covenant, and he's the only right. one that keeps the covenant. It's not based upon us, praise the Lord. Right. But if he were to change and be like, nah, I don't need to keep true to this covenant, there's, there's, no, there's no I know. hope. Since you mentioned that and hope and keep true to this covenant, let me kind of make somewhat of, not a heretical, but an inappropriate comparison to it. Um, we as Americans have one kind of immutable, unchangeable contract with our federal government. What is it? The Constitution, right? I thought it was taxes. <laughs> taxes. <laughs> yeah, that would be the immutable contract. Okay. So let's, let's bring this up. Now, is the Constitution a godly document? No, no, not at all. It's just something that's uniquely American. So I'm not, you know, combining the two. But I want to get you the, this idea. So as myself, obviously you guys know me, I am definitely a Second Amendment supporter, right? Duh. Um, with that being said, does it make you guys feel unsafe or fearful when we have talks of those amendments being completely abolished or just randomly uh, renegotiated at will by whoever is in office at the time? Very. Yeah. It makes you feel very unsafe and uneasy, right? Now imagine if that attribute was applied on God. That's freaky. That's absolutely freaky to think about him being able to be, you know, liquid like this and, and, our covenant with God can be changed because if he had a changing nature, that's awful. That doesn't, that doesn't fit. In my mind, that makes me very, very fearful if that were possible. So let's bring up some of those, those verses that I know if you have this conversation with folks, they are going to bring up. What's the main one? Jonah 3.10. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, right? It says, God repented of the evil. In the King James. Uh-huh. Or Genesis 6, 5 through 6. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Okay, these are the two biggest verses that those major proponents, Clark Pinnock and Gregory Boyd. Um, yeah, Jonah 3.10. And then Genesis chapter 6, 5 through 6. So, these passages, first and foremost, they don't suggest that there was a change in the character of God, right? Only his actions towards men based on the actions of men. We changed our interaction with God, not God changing his interaction with us. God must deal with men in accordance of his holy character. He must eventually deal with sin and judgment as he did in Genesis 6. Or he acts in mercy when men repent as he did with Nineveh. But God's actions are always consistent with his character. So the Genesis passage doesn't say that God changed his mind in the sense that he wished he had never made man, but that only that he was grieved over our behavior. Does that make sense? Okay. Which verse is that? Genesis uh, chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. And with, with Nineveh and Jonah, we see God's, in Isaiah, we see God's sovereign plan for every nation. Right. And his plan for these nations to judge Israel and then be judged by God after he uses them to judge Israel because of the evil. Um, so we can, we can, you know, use scripture to interpret scripture and understand that that's not God changing. God had a plan always to have mercy on Nineveh. Right. He just used Jonah to experience it and, and bring about that, 
that repentance from Nineveh? Um, and sometimes, very rarely, will I um, say that the NIV is a better translation because a lot of the stuff they, in my, my, in my opinion, they do poorly. However, in Jonah 3.10, I think the NIV did, they nailed it on this one. Um, and it, it says in the NIV, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So, again, the mercy. Yeah. It's not God changing his mind. So, this unchangeableness of God, how much time do we have left? Oh, not too much. Okay. The unchangeableness of God, and we'll end here with the immutability or unchangeableness of God. It's a terror to the wicked because it means God must always deal with them in accordance with his holy character and his plan. They can't influence that, right? Like uh, Ben's example of the folks, you know, somehow praying that God would conceal the damage that they did to the rental car company. That's awful. That's, that's not even close to the character of God. God makes no deals and does not accept any man's person apart from his plan of salvation and the work of Christ. So God's unchangeableness, it's a consistent comfort to believers because it means God is what? He's always faithful, always, to his promises, to his principles of his word. And this reason God is called the rock in Deuteronomy 32. When the entire world around us seems to fluctuate and shake, like right now, I mean, there's everything about our society that's topsy-turvy. For goodness sakes, we have, don't get me started, but we have justices that can't define what a woman is, right? Because they're not a biologist. I mean, Yo, you know. I'm not in that, but I know what a doctor is. <laughs> right? <laughs> there's so many things in this world that are completely topsy-turvy and I don't know. Again, maybe it's just me, but I'm sure you guys have had the same thing. There's been times where, you know, I get news stories on my phone or whatever, and it'll flash, and I'll read one real quick, and you just feel, oh my gosh, how bad can it possibly get? How much worse? How much worse? worse. You know, you just start to feel hopeless or defeated or just unsafe is the best uh, phrase I can come up with. But it doesn't matter because God isn't subject to that changeableness. He doesn't fluctuate or shake about. Um, God is one safe and faithful place of uh, anchorage in our lives. His work's perfect. His ways are just. He's faithfulness without injustice, righteousness, and upright. Psalm 18. Let me read that real quick. And we'll end here. We'll see if we have any questions. Psalm 18, uh, starting in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And also go down to verse 31 of Psalm 18. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Amen. So I'm going to close with these verses, if you guys want to read a little bit more about God being unchanging, praise God. Um, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Um, and Psalm chapter 36, verse 5. Again, like I said, my ultimate goal um, is just to help us to understand who God is more and have that deeper fellowship with him, not surfacey stuff. We all have those acquaintances where, you know, when you sit down and you talk with them and it's like, yeah, you know, it's been raining for seven months here in Washington. You know, <laughs> you, you just talk about surfacey stuff where everyone knows it. No, duh. I live here too. You know, I, we don't need to talk about the rain together. And then you have those friends that when you sit down, oh man, those are some pretty deep conversations usually. You guys will get into, you know, what's really happening in your life and you actually care. You know, you're not just asking what's going on in your life, hoping that they won't answer or that they're going to give you <laughs> a surfacey, um, short answer so this conversation isn't excruciatingly long. See, I want us to move to that place where when we have that scripture reading and that fellowship and that communion time with God, it's no longer a surfacey thing. It's no longer that God is this 
unseen force over here somewhere. I don't want that for us. And I've had that too in my own Christian walk, you know, where you, you have this idea or this feeling that when you're praying that God is over there somewhere rather than, you know, when you're sitting, say, talking with your wife and she's right there and you can feel and you can see her reactions and look into her eyes. You can have that type of relationship with God just by getting to know him more and more. And in my mind, unfortunately, I think the only way is to go through the nerd work, at least for me, for us to kind of understand more about who God is. Um, as just kind of a general curiosity, when we went over last week on how to really study your scripture, has anyone tried that yet? Did anyone try that? Uh huh. For meditating on God's word? Anyone try it? No? You guys. <laughs> <laughs> we're honest. <laughs> <laughs> right. At least we're honest. Okay. Any questions? Concerns? Emotional outbursts? Anything? No? For some people that may not feel comfortable talking to other people about the mutability of God and these other considerations we've discussed here, it reminds me back to the Pharisees questioning the blind man about Jesus. And he said, hey, all I know was once I was blind, and now I see. Yeah. And that's a powerful testimony. Yeah, it is. nothing about the eternality of God. Right. So even if you don't have that that ability to talk about the things you just did as eloquently as you did, your testimony is still of great value. Absolutely. Look up the video of Alistair Begg talking about the man on the middle cross. And it talks about the thief on the cross and when he gets to heaven. And the angels are like, do you know why you're here? And he's like, no. I, that is so good. That yeah. is a wonderful and, story. And he's like, well, do you know the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> no. Well, are you a member of a church? No. On what basis are you in heaven? And he said it was the man on the middle cross. He said I could be here. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, too, just if it's helpful, um, in, in, even in Jesus' time when he was performing miracles and you know with hundreds of people, in and, and John 6, verse 44, he says, the only people that will follow me are the people that were drawn by my Father. Yeah. So people were seeing him doing miracles, and they didn't believe him. Right. Yeah. right. Right. It's like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just that, that predestined, yeah. of, um, man, what does that mean? And, I mean, no matter how structured or disciplined you are, um, you're a lucky one, unless you, if you truly believe. Yeah. Um, where does that end, I guess, I, you know, like that predestined, who is drawn to him? I mean, we have free will. Before you were born, that was... Yeah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Yeah. Yeah, I know. There's, there's a lot in that. Um, I mean, thanks for opening up that can of yeah. worms, Eric. <laughs> 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 yeah, Michael, did you have something? No? Oh, I was just thinking about the immutability of God benefits us even if we don't know the term. Right. You think that God doesn't care. You look back at your past life. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And you see all the answers to prayer, all the blessings all the protections and now you're doubting and you remind yourself my God doesn't change no mm -hmm. the God I had 20 years ago is the same God today and will be the same God 20 years from now so I don't have to worry about tomorrow because mm -hmm. I never hope tomorrow <laughs> right <laughs> and just the sovereignty mm -hmm. from that that yeah, we don't have to worry. Um, so how's it going so far? Are you guys getting this okay-ish? Ish? Okay. Is next week the last one? Uh, on on God, on the doctrine <laughs> of God. Where are we going today, Andrew? Um, for Sunday school classes, for the, all the Sunday school, that's the last Sunday. Okay. Um, that's what Sunday school is set up to be. Okay, so I'll try and wrap up the doctrine of God, you know, a course that took me 19 weeks to do. <laughs> I'll do it in three hours. <laughs> so there's that.
<laughs> but let's pray. Father, God, we just, we are awestruck um, at your awesomeness. And we just pray that we can get a glimmer of who you are. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for you just having fellowship and communion with us. Um, God, we, our whole purpose in any of this is just, well, selfishly, we, we want it to be deeper, Lord. Just as Ben pointed out, um, God, the one thing that we ask for is your spirit. We ask that we can be further vessels for you and that the only way to accomplish that is just to know you more and more intimately, Lord. And please grant us that request. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.